0: It's good to be with you. Um, if you're in person or on YouTube, thanks for joining us in worship this morning. If you are on YouTube, it's our hope that you can join us in person um, as soon as you can. In the meantime, if you're new to North Cross virtually, you can email info at or sit at northcrosschurch.com. If you're new to North Cross physically, like you're here in person, there's a welcome table out front that we'd ask you to swing by, grab a mug, Uh, You can drop your email if you'd like. We won't bother you, except to say hello. Um, And maybe that's a bother, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, But nonetheless, we'd love to do that. (laughs) Um, And if you're not exactly new and you're kind of looking to get more involved, next step is going to be looking for a life group and details are in your e and on that. Uh, And finally, those of you who are here, plugged in, uh, we're so glad you're here um, and we hope you feel warmly welcomed. And we're just glad to be with you all uh, together. I'm thankful to open up and say the scriptures together Uh, this morning. uh, We're going to continue to spend some time in the New Testament letter to the Ephesians. And we're looking in particular as we look at Ephesians at God's vision for his church, that particular vision for what community is and what community should be or will become. Uh, And simply put, we've said this in a lot of different ways, but the church is and always has been meant to be an ordinary looking miracle. And this week, um, our passage that Mark just read, marks sort of this middle point or halfway point of the book of Ephesians for us. It it's symbolizes sim- sort of a dramatic shift in what Paul's gonna do from focusing on who God is and what glorious things God is up to in the church and through the church and in this world. And it's gonna shift to who we are and what we're called to do and who we're supposed to be and how to live our best lives in this everyday, practical way. And that's really what's gonna happen, and that that kind of transition can feel like a lot, and so I wanna kind of ground what we're about to talk about in prayer, um, even as Paul did that at the end of chapter three. So let's let's go to the Lord, and would you pray with me uh, for our time this morning, and God's words to us? Let's pray. Father, um, this is a really challenging passage. Uh, It has worked me over, Um, and I just pray that some of the humility that you have um, forced into me uh, this week would come out, Um, not just for my sake, but for all of our sakes and for your glory, God. Um, We stink at this as a church, uh, not just local, but uh, national and even global, and I pray that you would help our hearts to heal by your grace, but you'd also lead us to where we're not yet. Uh, and we pray that uh, you would encourage us in the meantime, that you, Jesus, have done a great work for us, that you, Jesus, not only engage, but you pursue, that you, Jesus, show up and you're living and you're active in your word. And I pray that you would meet us this morning through it. Would we see you and you alone, Jesus? Would you be high and lifted up to the eyes of our hearts, we pray in your name, amen. As I just said, the Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six is like this pivot or hinge point in the book uh, of Ephesians, Paul's entire letter. And whether you've been around the church for a while or you're kind of brand new, my guess is that you have similar expectations for what Paul is about to say next. So I wanna do the game real quick, okay? It's called, it's, we can call it fill in the blank or you can call it Mad Libs, however old you are, okay? In your heart, not just, not just physically, okay? So I'm gonna say this, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna read it and I want you to kind of mentally fill in the blank. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to blank. Okay, autofill. Think about, you haven't read this passage just a couple of minutes ago, what would you autofill? Be holy love one another, or even heal the world, make it a better place, to quote Michael Jackson, (laughs) right? Instead, Paul says this, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, that sounds familiar, Paul, gotcha. But how do I do that? Why do I do that? What exactly are we called to? Verse three, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Wait, what? (laughs) That's not what we fill in. That's not what we think kind of happens. Unity, that's Paul's urgent plea for unity. I would doubt that that's what you expect. It's certainly not what I expect. I'd hardly argue that unity is the top of our Christian discipleship 2022 regimen. I doubt that unity is at the top of how we even choose a church. And so let me get really even more uncomfortably honest. And you can, tell, you can call this next statement what you want. It's part confession of sin, part Christian subculture observation. But I really, really struggle with Christian unity. And you know how I know that? Because um, every time I hear this concept, I squirm a bit and I really struggle with the people who call loudest for Christian unity. I do, I'm, I'm not proud of that but that's how I feel. And uh, God knows we need unity in the church. He knows we need unity globally, but he also knows we need it in this local church even. COVID-19 has unearthed so many forms of disunity, right? Radical political divisions that have swinged from healthcare, you know, like face masks and vaccination status, all the way to race and sexuality and gender and even jobs. And the church has struggled to act differently than the rest of America hasn't it man and all my pastor friends that I talk to are reporting the same thing that people are changing churches like they change supermarkets this isn't about the people who are new to church or the idea of church or new to the area but let's just say the great resignation is not just applying to church going it's applying to to ju- uh, it's a, sorry, it's not just applying to jobs, it's also applying to church going. There's a great resignation going on all over. And at the same time that I totally feel the need for unity, I also just really wanna confess I'm so cynical. I'm so cynical about real, long-lasting, deep unity. Whenever I hear someone call for unity, I immediately think of my 12 years as a college campus minister. <laughs> Do you, I, I don't know if you know this, but I was on campus minister for 12 years in three different college campuses. And pretty much like clockwork, every two years, a group of sophomores would email me in August, right before the school year started. So it's amazing. And a really well-meaning burst of passionate idealism, these students from various campus ministries would ask for ministers like me to consider meeting, uh, merging our ministries into one big super Christian ministry. Every year, every two years. And this would happen that finally on campus, something Christian would happen and we'd all come together and they'd ask me to help organize something where all the college Christians could get together and we'd do something epic. Because we weren't doing anything epic at, the point, at that point. It'd be like a worship night or a fellowship speed dating or a got Jesus b- bulletin board. You know, whatever it was, it was just big, Okay. Um, And almost every two years, because I'm a people pleaser and because I don't like to crush 19-year-old dreams, (laughs) I would agree to meet up with these sophomores and we would meet one time, one time. And as nice as I was and as enthusiastic as they were, we almost never met again after that. Maybe a Christian college mixer or a worship night happened, but the follow-up didn't. That was, there was no intentional shared ministry together after that because we had never actually had the difficult conversations about what common set of beliefs we all held. No time was made for the difficult relationships from different styles of worship or different theological convictions um, because there was a lack of humility and gentleness and patience and bearing one another in love. Look, the point of this story is not to lay down some sort of Christian challenge for you, okay? So let's just say you're a Davidson student, hypothetically, and you really do not have, you don't have to hear me, you do not have to, don't have to make it your life mission to prove me wrong. You just don't, you're free not to, (laughs) okay? You really don't have to do that. You don't have to prove me wrong by starting your own sustainable cross ministry gathering that turns into just another ministry option at the next club activity fair. (laughs) If you're an adult here, you don't have to prove me wrong either, or older adult, I should say. Please, please don't start another, and all-but-name Christian denomination to end all Christian denominations. We have a lot of those already. I think the point of my confessing all this, and it's a confession, I promise you. It's a confession. I don't love my heart about it. It's clearly cranky, okay? And I just it's about unity, and it's this. Shallow, temporary Christian unity is easy to do. It's easy, but it does not change us and it does not change our world. Deep, lasting unity, like Paul's talking about in this passage, is hard to do. But it does change us and it does change the world. So how do we take Paul and the Bible seriously here? How do we move towards deep and long-lasting unity what's already ours in Jesus? Or in the verse three's words, how do we maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? In our passage Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six, there's three ways that are suggested to experience a deep and lasting Christian unity. Here are the three things. First, we live out Christianity as a verb. The one mission of our unity in Jesus, verse one. Secondly, we live out Christianity as an adverb. The one manner of our unity in Jesus, verses two and three. And third and finally, we live out Christianity as a noun, the one motivation of our unity in Jesus, verses four through six. The sermon outline and all of its grammatical and 3M glory is in your bulletin, uh, e bulletin, or projected behind me perhaps. Let's begin with verse one and the first M and the first piece of grammar Christianity as a verb, the manner of our unity. So look, I, I know this, I can imagine some of you, maybe internally, maybe maybe outside of yourselves, you rolled your eyes, and that's okay, at my outline. <laughs> it's okay, we can confess, this is it's a safe place. All those parts of speech, verbs, you know, adverbs, nouns, Ugh. but it's so helpful to think about verse one grammatically. For instance, I don't tend to lead with this in a conversation, I really don't, but occasionally some people ask me what I majored in in college. <laughs> that's a dangerous question because I answer classics and everyone goes, what in the world is that? And I go, look, look, I got to get ahead of this narrative. It's not classical music. It's not classic cars. (laughs) Classics is the study of ancient Greece and Rome, their history, their literature, their art, and yes, their languages. So, and if you know anything about the languages of Greek and Latin, they don't work like the English language, right? You can't just translate the vocab words from left to right in order. The written. In Latin and Greek, the doing word, the verb, is put at the very end of the sentence. And so they, would, they wouldn't say, I write to Billy. They would say, I to Billy write. And I can see the nervous look in some of your faces. <laughs> is he going to do like a grammar lesson for, the, for 30 minutes? Is this how this is going to go? Why is he talking about this? Is this sermon going to turn into that tra- translation lesson? The answer is no, it's not. And my point is that the book of Ephesians works a lot like a Greek or a Latin sentence. The doing words, the verbs are at the end of the book, okay? As I pointed out before, it's worth noticing again of the many words in chapters one through three, there's only one word that we're supposed to do and it's called, it's remember. Remember, it's a a command word. Chapter two, verse 11. And now beginning in chapter four, verse one, Paul's going to lay it on thick with lots and lots and lots of doing words for us to do. I urge you to walk, maintain the unity of the Spirit, and so on and so on and so on for three chapters. But why is Paul doing it this way? Why is he backloading all the doing words for us to do at the end of his letter? Yes, Paul wrote this letter in ancient Greek, and so he's kind of reflecting the way that that language works at a sentence level. But I think more importantly, Paul's doing something really profound. He's talking to us about how to live the Christian life. How do we live the Christian life? How does it work? And let me just kind of, let's be honest. In the face of a long list of things to do, right, in the Christian life, some of us need Paul, some of us need Paul to curb our enthusiasm to be busy and to get her done. We need him to go slow down, tiger, (laughs) okay? Others of us, need Paul to curb that rising feeling of overwhelm we get with so many asks. Easy. This is why Paul begins with a therefore. That word refers back to all that he's written before chapter 4 verse 1, right? Before the foundation of the world, God chose to make his enemies, his sons, and his daughters. Jesus fills the church, his church, with the fullness of his presence, of his glory. God in his mercy, through the spirit, resurrected morally dead men and women. And he has made one body, the church, out of all the tribes and peoples and languages. And his love is just getting started. It's amazing news. And we build our lives on that solid foundation. We grow out from that life supplying tree trunk. Before you do, God did, right? We love because he first loved us, John, 1 John 4, verse 19. I really appreciate the way a pastor friend of mine puts it. He says this, it's less Newsome, in Christianity, we establish our identity first, then we talk about obedience. For every other religion, and I'd also add all their philosophies and ideologies, it's reversed. The things you do establish who you are. That is, I don't obey to get accepted by God. I get accepted by God and therefore I obey him. Do you see the difference there? Or another way of saying it is we don't have to live to create a new reality for ourselves every single day, every single moment, new me, new you, new year, et cetera, et cetera. Right, we get to live out an already established reality. And that established reality is the reality of a relationship, our spiritual union with Jesus. And this is what Paul's getting at when he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He's saying this, let the way you live your life match or be consistent with the calling of you being in Jesus, and Jesus being in you, okay? And that is we walk step by step. We walk curve of the road by curve of the road, like Jesus walks. But before I get into just how Jesus walks, and we'll talk a lot about that in verses two and three, my second main point, I wanna briefly pause here and acknowledge the power of naming and living out of reality. Can we do that? Can we just talk about what the power of naming and living out of reality is? I don't know what I'd say if you said, no, we can't do that, but I'm gonna do it. (laughs) Think about how powerful it would be to name and live out of reality and say dating, okay? So many couples play married, right? They sync their calendars, they sync their bodies, they sync their monthly bills as if they've publicly vowed to be together forever, but they really haven't. Right? Or some say we're just friends, but the romantic and sexual benefits they give each other are not consistent. They don't just match up with what being friends means. right? But the power of naming and living out of reality also applies to marriage and parenting, doesn't it? It's confusing when spouses live and act like just tolerate to each other roommates. And it's also confusing for everyone involved when parents let children act like parents, making all the family decisions from what's for dinner to how to spend a Sunday. It's so powerful when spouses and parents, when children and friends live out or act out of the reality of their named relationships. Or in Paul's words, when we walk in the manner worthy of our calling but I don't, want, I don't want us to lose the central thread of what ties all of these vocational callings together, our ideas of dating and marriage and friendship and parenting, right? Paul is calling us to see and to live out of a more fundamental truth that undergirds all of those things, that holds them all together. And that's our personal unity with Jesus, right? And so in verses two and three, Paul calls Christianity an adverb, one common manner with which we live the Christian life. Our second main point this morning Look, like Christians, a few centuries, were fond of this saying. They said, God loveth the adverbs. This is what, this, this is what they talked about. You know, we say, do the, we do, do life together. They said, God loveth the Christian adverbs. What do they mean by that? What theologians like Joseph Hall meant by this is that the Christian life, including our kind of calling to strive for unity, all Christianity begins at a mindset level. Okay, it begins with a heart attitude. We live out the reality of our union with Christ with the attitude or focus on the attitude of our hearts. We live out the mindset of what it means to live out of our unity with Christ by starting at our hearts, with our attitude of our hearts, okay? Verse two gives us a few characteristics to align our attitude to Jesus' example or manner right? And these words like, words like humility and gentleness, patience and long suffering, these words remind us of how much we actually daily need the power of Jesus in our lives. These are impossible except for with Jesus, his forgiveness for our character failures, right? We need that as well as his engine of his spirit within us to actually do these things. And so humility and gentleness motor our minds, in a whole different way. We move from the box of chocolates and pink construction paper hearts of Valentine's Day tomorrow, still good things, don't neglect them, (laughs) okay? But at the same time, we go to something bigger, how Jesus describes his own heart in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11, right? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here, gentleness, does not mean weakness. Instead, it means strength under control. Jesus is calling us to be like him, to use our gifts and our abilities, not to manipulate, but to minister, to serve others, not to assert my right to be served. And likewise, humility is the opposite of pride. And pride's constant clamor is for respect to be paid. And instead, humility is forgetting about one's own merits and being kind of wrapped up or caught up in an appreciation of the worth and value of the people we're with. As a very young child, uh, the composer Mozart, who's kind of famous as this really one of the most kind of uh, melodic of composers. He's great at doing harmonies, the most harmonious music. This, as a young child, he's probably four years old at the time, someone asked Mozart how he does it. Right? They said, how do you compose such wonderful music? And the young Mozart replied, I just put together notes that like each other. <laughs> I just put together notes that like each other. <laughs> okay, Just like notes, people who try to like each other make wonderful harmonies together, (laughs) wherever they are, including and maybe especially in the church. So how can we begin to see how gentleness and humility promote deep and lasting unity and how their opposite, you can see that, right? You can see that those things would help us to do unity, but then we also need to see that their opposite manipulation and pride can kill community so easily. The same is true for patience and bearing with one another. These attitudes of Jesus ask us this hard question, what do you do with people you don't like, right? Just like it's so important to name the reality of friends or spouses or parents and then to live out of that reality, it's so equally important to name the reality of people who feel like enemies in our lives. We all have them. People who just irritate us, you know, get under our skin, kind of feel awkward or slimy, or even people we despise. They're so impossible. Man, they're just out to get me. What would it look like for us as Christians to treat the difficult people in our lives differently than the rest of humanity, right? For instance, how would we deal with conflict differently? Perhaps in the name, but not in the spirit of boundaries, we're too quick to cut off contact with somebody, aren't we? We're really quick to do that. Is it because they're dangerous? Sometimes, okay? But sometimes it's just because we're stressed when we see them. You see, Jesus wants us to be able to point, he wants to be able to point to the church, right? Whether it's first century Ephesus or it's 21st century Lake Norman. And Jesus wants us to, wants to be able to say, look at what a living God can actually do. Look how differently they handle disagreements and conflict. Look at how they engage each other, not just friends and family, but people that feel like enemies. Because you know what? That's just how I engaged and pursued them. I loved them when they were enemies. Oh, what a picture of unity. And that is what's so devastating about what's happened to the American church in the last two years. During COVID-19, what things haven't people left the church over? That's a fill in the blank. (laughs) That could take a while. (laughs) And without maintaining the unity and the bond of peace, cracks will just spread and the weeds of disunity will just grow. And the conditions are always right for disunity. But what are the conditions for true unity? What do we need to pray for or do to foster deep and long-lasting unity between Christians and their God? Well, it has to be bigger than just what we do, the verbs. It has to be bigger than just how we do what we do, the adverbs. Doesn't it? It seems like there are two very human strategies that we're constantly employing in the name of unity. I'm going to call one human sentimentality and the other human engineering. Okay? First, first strategy especially in the last few decades of America. It seems like the call for unity is based on human sentimentality. It goes, can't we all just get along? And I love that, but maybe more specifically, it looks like let's have unity for unity's sake. Come on people, you and I T Y, that's unity. To quote Queen Latifah, okay. But what does unity for unity's sake even mean, right? I love the idea, but how we can't just get along, right? Or someone like Rafi, with an acoustic guitar and a goofy grin and a playhouse theater full of children sings the song, the more we get together, 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 the more we get together, the happier we'll be. I'm not so sure world history <laughs> or church history has proved that true, Raffi, my man. <laughs> All right. And so the doers among us scoff at the feelers and, you know, and we kind of propose some human can-do some elbow grease. What we need is some social engineering here. Let's just tear down all these denominational boundaries and create one mammoth megachurch with no creed but Christ, right? Well, how do you handle weekly questions like who gets baptized and when? Good question. Or there's the response, the church is just in the way, Sid. It's so slow and it's so dated. Let's stop doing ministry through the church, Instead, let's work around the church, just individuals doing individual things for the kingdom of God. Why bother with all that institution? Why bother with all of that overhead? But Paul sees this word, he uses this word, "ecclesia." He uses it seven, no, excuse me, nine different times in the book of Ephesians. Do you know what that word means? It means the assembled congregation of God's people. It's really hard to get around. And he uses it nine different times in the book of Ephesians. And what we've seen is this is Jesus' body, the living temple filled with all of Jesus' fullness. And so what does deep and lasting, what is deep and lasting, long-lasting unity in the church based on then, right? What do we base it on? It has to be based on something or someone far bigger than us, right? The Trinity, It's based on the Trinity. That is, Christianity is a noun, the one motivation for our unity. Third and final point, it'll be briefer, verses four through six, okay? Stick with me. Once again, one last time, it's so important to acknowledge the power of seeing and then living out of reality, isn't it? In this case, the united reality of God. God the Spirit, verse four, God the Lord Jesus, verse five, God the Father, verse six, three persons living in union with each other in one substance or Godhead. Okay? We receive this God, three in one, a he who is a we, and then we and then we receive anyone who believes in this triune God with in hope and faith and baptism. Just one. Right? no matter what cultural or personal background, no matter what different views on church, government, or music, or even what Christians should do on Halloween, and how to dress, okay? That is we major on what the Bible majors on, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and how we must be saved by faith and with hope, all symbolized by one baptism. And that is why we share this building with Light and Life Church, because we have a ministry partnership in the same God, okay, with the same gospel, but they are reaching Spanish-speaking Pentecostal brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are not doing that, (laughs) okay? (laughs) So next time you see the well-worn carpet in the hallways, think about the many, many, many people in the kingdom of God that use this building. So now that we've named the Christian noun, how do we live with our reality out of this reality of the Trinity? Put it another way, how do we think global church but live local church, okay? How do we do, think global church and live local church? Well, if all of us have one in the spirit dwelling inside of us, that same Holy Spirit, we can't count another Christian out, ever. We can't ever count another Christian out. Look, if I can change, you can change. If you can change, I can change. Because we share the same spirit. Right? If everyone has the same, one of the same Lord Jesus, unity cannot mean anything goes or nothing really matters. We both live for and by a higher authority Jesus and his words, the Bible. Jesus gets to interrupt our agendas no matter how strongly we feel or think about it, what we want. And finally, if all of us who believe in Jesus share the same spiritual father, who is over all and through all and in all, this means I am called to deal with my anger at a Christian brother or sister in a more honorable way and i'm called to deal with my anger at a sister or brother or sister or excuse me. i'm deal, i'm called to deal with a sister or brother in christ who's angry at me in a more honorable way okay if i'm angry at someone or someone's angry at me i need to look behind the hurt and i need to see him or her how god my father sees them she's infinitely precious he's infinitely precious so much so that Jesus went to a cross for that person. Jesus gave his life for that person. The least I can do is be patient. And let me end by sharing a time in my ministry career as a college campus minister that a student unity movement actually worked. (laughs) It's a miracle. (laughs) Ordinary looking, but still a miracle. (laughs) it actually did go deeper and it did have a long lasting impact on the university. And it was my last year at New Mexico State University and one of our worship leaders, a student named Eric, uh, he he wanted our ministry to participate in a kind of multi-ministry worship night. But Eric was clear about the mission. God and what He has done would be the center. And Eric approached me and his fellow students in a beautiful manner with humility and gentleness. And he patiently bore with difficult schedules and setting up meeting after meeting after meeting in order to talk through his and their motivation. And what was their motivation? They were to choose songs that worshiped a God they could all agree on. One, fo- one spirit, one Lord, one Father. But in all the different styles of all the different ministries. I went to that worship night and my cranky heart softened. It did. I sang those powerful songs and I felt softened and my cynicism shrank just a little as I watched those student relationships continue. The ones that began months earlier in those preliminary meetings, I watched them continue months later with humility and gentleness, patience and bearing with one another in love. Unity is hard, but in Jesus Christ, and the Spirit, and the Father, it's possible. And it is sweet, and it changes us, and it changes the watching world. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the challenge of this. Um, It's beautifully um, difficult, but also beautifully sweet to imagine. We all long for this. We long for this in so many ways, and we do so many things towards this, and I pray that you would help us, oh Lord, to taste the sweetness of it, and would the change be yours, and would it be by you working through us? Lord, we pray. We pray for unity in our church, locally, nationally, internationally, We pray that you would be the center, Jesus, bringing your people together. Would we be one as you, Jesus, are one with the Father? We pray that prayer you prayed in your name. Amen.